A major theme among the three friends has been that bad things happen to bad people. That's pretty much the thrust of the friend's message. Eliphaz has insisted on this. Uh, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days, he declared. Chapter 15, verse 20, Bildad obviously agreed with him. He said, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. Chapter 18, verse 5, and Zophar rams the message home when he says, the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Chapter 20, verse 5. So that is really the thrust of their message to Job and to us in God's Word that bad things happen to bad people and the opposite would be true. Good things happen to good people. Are there any good people? Not according to what Scripture says. And we have seen that their descriptions of the fate of the wicked have many verbal echoes of the way that Job has described his own condition. Thus, they imply that Job must be one of the wicked. In his first two speeches in this cycle, and we see those in chapters 16, 17, and 19, Job has really majored on his struggles with God and reached out in faith to his conviction that God will or that God is certainly just and that God will vindicate him in the end. Now at the end of the cycle of second speeches, uh, Job kind of closes it out by answering his friends head on, straightforward. His argument in the next section is, is simple and logical. He describes the, the good lives wicked people often enjoy and challenges his friends to look around and see for themselves. Why? Because we know that they've been saying over and over, all these terrible things are going to happen to the wicked in their lives. And Job is saying, I don't know about that. Take a look around you. Look at how the wicked are flourishing and enjoying their lives. That is a, a major argument in this next text. And he pushes the idea that if God delays judgment and allows wicked people to live quote-unquote good lives, then it is totally possible for God to delay vindication and to allow the righteous to suffer. Of course he's speaking of himself because he is a righteous man who is suffering. He's blameless. That is really the thrust of this next section. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 21. Job chapter 21. I've got three main points for you this morning, but first we need to pray and spend a little bit of time unpacking Job's introduction. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves and, and ask for your help during this time. Lord, teach us from your word. Teach us from the words of Job, which are really your words. They are your inspired words. They are scripture. And we pray that you teach us from them. Uh, we pray that uh, you help us to see how the wicked do flourish, and yet in the end, they are doomed. And there are lessons that we need to draw from this text and apply to our own lives. So we pray that you teach us now, and we pray that you're glorified as we engage in this study. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's pick it up at where we left off, and uh, that would be with Job's introduction. We see this in verses 1 through 6, 1 through 6. Chapter 21 of Job, we'll pick it up at verses 1 through 3. This is what Job says after Zophar unpacks his final speech. Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. 
Stop right there. Job is, I love this guy, man. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. He's hilarious. He begins by really appealing to his friends to stop talking and basically to shut up and to carefully listen to his words. Since he had failed to comfort him through an endless barrage of false accusations and spiritual hate speech, he tells them that he will settle for their silence and attention. This would be a way that they could comfort him. This would be their comfort toward him if they did that. And he says it very sarcastically. Really what he's saying is shut up and listen. That's how you can comfort me. You can't comfort me with anything else that you've been saying, but if you shut up and listen, hey, I'll get a little comfort out of it. That's what he's declaring. He asks that they bear with me or be patient while he makes his argument. Uh, after he has finished speaking, then they can resume, they can pick up where they left off, and they can, in his own words, mock on. I love that. Now, these words of Job here, this correction and this sarcasm, they demonstrate that uh, really that how Job feels about the entirety of their speeches. Uh, in his estimation, they've been giving him nothing but empty advice. Nothing but, but hot wind, hot air, just a bunch of verbal nonsense. He saw their speeches and their responses to him, their replies to him, or their attacks on him as nothing more than destructive criticism. Verses 4 and through 6 here, he says, As for me, is my complaint against man? This is a great question. He says, Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. And lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Job asks a rhetorical question with the implied answer as no. He had not directed his harsh words toward man, so he couldn't figure out why his friends were so tweaked. He's basically been talking to his friends, but he's been venting against God this whole time, and they're the ones who are all blown out over it. He's saying, I'm not even complaining against you guys. I'm complaining toward the Lord. He had directed his harsh words, his, his critique, his criticism, his concerns, his, his doubts, everything that he said thus far. He directed all of these things toward God in a sense. Why? Primarily because God had remained silent. God would not answer Job's questions. God would not answer Job's pleas for help. And this is what bothered Job more than anything else, more than all the criticism from his friends, more than all their spiritual hate speech, all their accusations. All of those things were terrible and troublesome. They were difficult for Job to swallow and deal with. But what upset him the most was God's silence during this whole ordeal. When you have someone who belongs to God and who is crying out constantly to God for help and not hearing from Him, how frustrating and even maddening could that be? He didn't have a Bible to turn to. The Bible had not yet been written. He has to, to hear from God through prayer back then. There is no uh, written revelation at that time. There's nothing recorded. He can't turn to his Bible and be encouraged like we could. God has to speak to him directly. God chose not to do that for this whole thing. And I mean, he, he's been railing against God. Why? Because God is not speaking to him. God is not helping him. I think that we can understand how he feels, right? I, I mean, we have the word, we have the encouragement, we have all that we need, but there's been times where we've cried out to God for help and we felt like that help did not come. 
usually the help that we're asking for is, is help to dig us out of a hole that we dug. And sometimes God lets us sit in that hole for a little while because that's the best thing for us, even though I'm scratching and clawing trying to get out. I'm yelling for a baboon up at the top to throw me some kind of rope or some kind of vine. Get me out of this thing. He is frustrated. He is upset. He's bothered more than anything because of God's silence and lack of help. In an effort to elicit a little sympathy and compassion from his friends, Job calls for them to look on him. Remember what he looks like. He's a pile of sores with worms, and he's disheveled. He's a mess. And, and the, the, the idea that if they just stopped their harangue and quit, quit attacking him and just looked at him, maybe some compassion would well up in them. Maybe it's like us being at the bedside of someone who got absolutely nuked and they're in a hospital bed and they're destroyed and we're there to make a spiritual point while looking at a bloody mess and we don't see the bloody mess, we just want to make the spiritual point. And maybe he would say, hey man, I got ran over, dude. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry about you getting run over. Run over. Now let's get back to the truth real quick. I don't know how we would respond in that situation, but that's how he feels. Just look at me. Look at my, my grotesque physical condition and, and clasp your hands over your mouths in, in horror, right? Considering what he was about to say about the earthly lot of the wicked, Job was dismayed and shuddering seized his flesh. That's why he says that. He's about to unpack some pretty heavy-duty things that, that are are within the will of God, but mysterious and hard to understand. And it's causing him in his terrible condition with these moronic friends, he's now dismayed with what he has to say. He's terrified of saying the things that he's about to say, in a sense. He is shaking and shivering in fear as he unpacks this awesome discourse that we're about to look at. Unlike his friends... Job did not presume to understand what God was doing in this situation, but he did reflect on the prosperity of the wicked. From here forward, he argues against the theory of his friends that the wicked do not enjoy good lives and their lives are snuffed out really quickly and all their kids die and they never, they never get to have anything decent in life. That's what they've been arguing. And, and from here forward, he is going to annihilate that theory, that theological position, that religious background that they have. And we can begin with our first point, our main point here. Number one, the wicked are often happy. The wicked are often happy. Uh, he says this in verses 7 through 16. It's a, the longer of the sections here. I'll pick it up at verse 7. He says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? This is what he says. Job basically completely decimates and nukes his friends with this singular statement. Zophar said that the wicked will die untimely deaths. <laughs> when their bones are full of youthful vigor, they will lie down in the dust. 20, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 11, right? They, they don't reach old age. They don't live long lives. They don't, they don't experience any kind of power or anything, he says. And what is Job doing here? He's saying, I don't think so, pal. The wicked not only live, right? They reach old age. In other words, they live long lives. Zophar 
Uh, he said that the wicked will end up broke and their kids will have to pay their debts. Chapter 20, verses 21 and verse 10. This is what he meant. But Job says, really? Then why do the wicked grow mighty in power? How do they become so powerful? How do they live such long lives if these things that you're saying are true? And this question that, that Job asks is echoed elsewhere in the Old Testament. It is asked from either the standpoint of faith or from the standpoint of unbelief. The Jews of Malachi's day asked it in unbelief when they said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge when evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape? Malachi 3, verses 14 and 15. And then others asked the question in the perplexity of faith, as did Jeremiah and Asaph. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 2, he said this, same kind of thing that Job has asked, "'Why does the way of the wicked prosper?' Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Isn't that a wonderful question that Jeremiah asks? Have we not asked that question ourselves? And then Asaph in Psalm 73 verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> he may have been suffering and yet here he is envious of the wicked around him who are prospering. And I think that's Job's exact sentiment at this time. He feels the exact same way. Job, like these others, he's asking this question. It's a rebuke to his friends, but it's also a question that he's asking in faith. Like Jeremiah and Asaph, Job was deeply perplexed by moral disorder. But this did not destroy his faith. It didn't destroy his faith. He didn't stop believing because he couldn't figure that one out. His question also strikes at the heart of his friend's rewards and retribution theology, doesn't it? They have said repeatedly that the wicked barely prosper, if at all. How can they prosper? They're wicked. They're not going to make it. This has been their argument since the beginning of the book. They won't even make it through life, they've said over and over and over. By the way, they're paralleling to Job. You're obviously wicked because you're destroyed and you're probably not going to make it through life. But Job says, wrong, the wicked can live long, prosperous, happy lives. And he illustrates this point in the following verses in uh, verse 8 through 13, that whole section there where he identifies five reasons why the wicked are happy. He gives them to us very plainly here. Verse 8 their offspring, speaking of the wicked, their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Job says, in effect, I notice that the wicked have children and their children grow up and they pass exams and they get jobs and they have families and they are established. This is the opposite of what happened with Job's 10 children, right? They kind of grew up, but then they died. Chapter 1, verse 19 it is also opposite, the opposite of what Bildad boldly, boldly and just flagrantly declared. The wicked, he said this of the wicked, he has no posterity or progeny among his people, no survivor, chapter 18, verse 19. If that's the case, then how are the offspring of the wicked established? How do they have descendants that they even get to see with their own eyes? 
This is the great question that Job is posing before them and the, and the first reason why the wicked are happy. Why are they happy? Because they have, they have children and their children do really, really well. Verse 9, their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Job basically says that the homes of the wicked are safe. Why? Because the disciplinary rod of God is not upon them. In other words, their homes are often characterized by peaceful prosperity and domestic tranquility because God does not come against them. This is the opposite of Job's own experience. He's a righteous man and he believes God has come against him, right? The home of his oldest son was obviously not safe. It was destroyed by a Scirocco, right? by a powerful windstorm. Job believed the, the divine rod of discipline had actually caused this in his life and to his family. Chapter 9, verse 34. Verse 9 also contradicts Zophar's claim. He said that the wicked will not be safe nor free of fear, but will be in constant distress. Chapter 20, verse 22. They are happy because their homes are safe. Uh, verse 10, God doesn't come against them yet. Verse 10, their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. According to Job, the prosperity of the wicked extends to their livestock. Both genders succeed in their respective assignments, their bull effectively inseminates, and their cow delivers live calves. They don't miscarry, they don't have any problems there. The wicked are essentially happy because they have great livestock and their animals live long lives and do all the things that they're supposed to do and reproduce and give them lots of calves and lots more bulls and it just keeps going and going. They're happy because of their livestock. Verses 11 through 12, they send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and to the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. Those are all ancient instruments, by the way. Job reverts back to the wicked's offspring. He noticed that they tend to have boys who are usually the heirs and they would, these little boys would form these little flocks, which means that the wicked are blessed with many children, right? You've got a whole flock of boys in your house. You've got a lot of kids. This is kind of a covenant blessing we read about in Psalm 127 verses 4 and 5. Uh, this is, again, the opposite of Job. All his kids were killed by that Scirocco. And not only do the wicked have many children, but their kids are happy because they dance and sing to Lady Gaga tunes played on the tambourine and the lyre, and they rejoice to the sound of the pipe, right? Ma, 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 right? Let me get my stupid contextual joke. Hey, if your kids are happy and they're dancing and they're happy all the time and they're joyful, are you not as a parent going to be real joyful? You might be so joyful, you'll tell them, shut up and go to your room. I'm tired of seeing you dance and do the Iron Man or the Running Man or whatever in the living room. He's saying that wicked parents, wicked people are happy because they have happy, joyful, dancing, singing, Lady Gaga-loving kids. Verse 13, right now there's somebody in here going, I like Lady Gaga too and I'm not wicked. Yes, you are. Uh, <laughs> she wore a meat suit. That was the only good part about her. You pull that off and throw it on the grill. Uh, that was weird. Verse 13, that's why you stop and get back to the text. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. Lastly, 
Uh, Job witnessed the wicked spending their days in prosperity, and at the end of their lives, they died in peace. The idea here is that they just passed on into the next life in their sleep. They had a really nice, peaceful exit. This observation contradicts Zophar's previous statements about how the wicked experience swift judgment and financial loss and all this terror and all these terrible things that are going to happen in their lives. Chapter 20, verses 5 through 25. So let's quickly summarize. The wicked are often happy because, one, their offspring are established, two, their bulls and cows do not fail, three, their houses are safe and free from fear, four, their children flock together and are happy, Lady Gaga loving little punks, and number five, their days are prosperous and peaceful. Now here's what's cool about this, or at least interesting about it. These are all covenant-like blessings. These are like the covenant promises that God made to the Israelites if they would obey Him and honor Him and love Him and not worship idols. And it's, it's really interesting to me that the wicked get to enjoy covenant-like blessings without even being in covenant with God. And I think that's the thing that frustrates Job. How do they prosper? How do they get all the things that I'm supposed to get? I'm not even getting these things, Job is thinking. But what he's doing here is he's refuting their theological position. Again, what do they say? The wicked suffer and die. They don't even make it through life. Their life is completely miserable. Job's like, I don't think so, man. If you look around, you'll see them enjoying themselves and having good lives. Their, their lives are better than my life right now, Job would say. And here's the deal. They get to enjoy these covenant-like blessings, right? The wicked enjoy them. Do they pay homage to God for His goodness toward them? Do they worship the giver? Of course not. Look at the next two lines, verses 14 and 15. The wicked say this, Job says, they say to God, depart from us. Notice the exclamation point, this force here. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Sounds like the Jews in Malachi's day. After chronicling the outward appearance of the wicked, Job looks inward to the rebellious attitude of the wicked they want nothing to do with God. They say in their hearts, depart from us. We want nothing to do with your ways. They attempt to deny God's existence, right? When they say, what is the Almighty? Who is that? What is that? Does He even exist? Is there such a thing as the Almighty, they say? And uh, they, they do question that. And if He did actually exist, they ask this question, why should we serve Him? Why should we pray to Him? How is this going to profit us? Why do they say that? Because they believe they have everything they need. Why would I need to, to add uh, uh, what I think is a fictitious God to my life when, when I'm the God of my own life and I have my own blessings and I've produced my own prosperity even though I've been swindling people? Why would I need God in my life? This is a question that, that wicked people ask all the time when you present the gospel. It's like, I, I don't need that. That's your truth. I don't need your truth. I have my truth, and I have a, a pretty good life. And this is one of the key reasons why we need to not present the gospel as the false prosperity people do. It's not about giving you a good life. It's about saving you from hell. And that is something that the wicked do not have, and nor do rich people have that. But when we make the gospel about temporal blessings and, and giving you an abundant life and all of these things, which is true in a sense, but when we make it about that, why would a wicked wealthy person or a wicked powerful person want anything to do with that? They have all that they need. 
Sometimes we say universally, God loves you. Well, the wicked person says, well, that's great because I love me too. Think about it. The gospel is, is not about giving us a good life. It's about saving us from hell, period. And yes, there's an abundance that you experience in life, but you may go through hell as you're experiencing it, and that abundance is the presence of Christ and the joy that He gives and His presence and His purpose and His security and these things that He gives to us. But we, we, we massively undersell. I don't even know if we should be trying to sell the gospel. Maybe that's what people are doing. They're trying to market it to people. Well, you can have a better life. The guy in a mansion doesn't need a better life. The wicked person doesn't care about a better life because some of them are living better lives than you and I. They have more money than us, more power, more influence, more cars, more homes, more beach vacations than any of us have. And I don't, that was a tangent. But maybe it's one that we need to hear. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. Why would we pray to Him? Why do we need Him in our lives? I used to think this way as a wicked person. I was not a wealthy person, never have been, probably never will be. But I saw no benefit to having God in my life. I saw restriction there. I saw rules. Why would I want to place rules upon myself when I want to go out and do the things that I want to do? Wicked people think this way, guys. This is the true attitude of the wicked. And prior to my conversion, when I was a wicked man, that was my exact attitude. I wanted nothing to do with God or with church because I saw no benefit to them, no value there. I already had what I needed in my, in my own mind, I thought that. So I believed God in church meant restrictions, and I didn't want to restrict my sinful, self-centered life. Plus, I thought church was dumb. It was dumb. It was a lame club to me. It was like, why would I want to be a part of that club? All they do is bind themselves up with rules. Well, you know, as a saved person, I realize that's not what it's about, but I didn't know that as a wicked person. The fact is the wicked enjoy all sorts of covenant-like blessings, and they attempt to thrust God from their lives and deny His existence. And I've said this a million times, just because you don't believe God exists doesn't mean He doesn't exist. really doesn't matter what you believe or what you think or how you feel. It doesn't change truth. It doesn't change reality. I don't believe Half Dome exists. Cameron's like, you're an idiot. I've climbed it 15 times. Why don't you believe it exists? Because I've never been there, and I can't imagine that it's there. It is there. He's climbed it. And people think, well, I don't believe in God, so therefore it doesn't apply. Oh, it applies, whether you like it or not. It applies. The wicked... Enjoy all sorts of covenant-like blessings. They deny God's existence. They hate God. They are enemies of God. They are adversaries against God. And all these blessings that they enjoy, it really frustrated Job. And I think it frustrates us at times. Job was a righteous man who loved and worshipped God, but he lost everything. But the wicked hate God and have everything. That's perplexing, is it not? Maybe Job was saying in his own mind at this point, how is this just? Maybe that's what he was reasoning. How is, how is that not only possible, but how is it just? Well, Job and we at times don't understand that this is all part of God's plan, right? He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good or the righteous, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust, doesn't He? 
Matthew 5, verse 45, God has His reasons for blessing and prospering the wicked. Sometimes it's because the wicked employ His people. And it doesn't do any good to feed His people when the wicked don't prosper because that's how the righteous get their paychecks. There's a million reasons why the wicked prosper. But ultimately, it's because that's God's will. Verse 16, Job continues, Behold, is there not prosperity in their hand? Speaking of the wicked. He says, The counsel of the wicked is far from me. He asks a simple question here. It's like he said, Look around, fellas. See for yourselves. Is not the prosperity, is not their prosperity in their own hands? Uh, If I can see that they have prosperity in their hands, if you look around, surely you can see it too, is what he's saying. He's saying, look at their offspring, look at their livestock, look at their peaceful, tranquil homes, look at their peaceful lives. It's, It's all around us if you just take a look around. He's saying, you guys are wrong. The wicked sometimes prosper, and that's big time. They big time prosper, and they are often happy. That's all there is to it. You guys are wrong. That's what he's saying. Second half of the verse, uh, there in 16, Job tells Zophar that he has no desire, zero desire to follow the counsel of the wicked, even though they prosper. Uh, Their ways are not his ways, right? They are wicked. Job is righteous. And think about what Job is saying. Maybe there's a temptation there just to go ahead and follow the ways of the wicked since it seems to be paying dividends. That's a temptation that we face our whole life of faith, right? We're very pragmatic at heart. If this works, we will tend to do it. And when we are suffering, we will often do whatever whatever it'll take to get out of that suffering. And Job is saying, look, they might have some counsel for me on how to have their best life now, but I ain't taking it because I'm a righteous man. That's what Job is saying here. That's a powerful statement in verse 16. Now we can move to our second main point. The first one was what? The wicked are often happy, right? Secondly, the wicked are rarely punished in life, verses 17 through 26. Again, these are contradictory to what Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz have been preaching. They're rarely punished in life, not all the time. What are you talking about? Listen to what he says in verse 17 and 18. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? It's a question. That their calamity comes upon them? Question. That God distributes pains in His anger. Question, how often does this happen, fellas? That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. Bildad is sure that the wicked or the light of the wicked is put out, right? He claimed this boldly, chapter 18, verse 5. Zophar says there is a day of God's wrath, chapter 20, verse 28. But Job asks, How often does this actually happen? Why is he saying this? Because he sees wicked people in his community living long, prosperous, peaceful lives. How are they snuffed out, fellas? I'm not seeing it. This is what he's saying. Now, Job is not at all denying the fact that God judges the wicked. He's not denying that. He knows the wicked will face God's fierce anger and experience calamity and pain. He knows this is true. He knows that the wicked will be like straw before the wind. They will be like chaff in the storm when God judges them. He is simply questioning the immediacy or timing of these things is all he's doing. He knows they're true, but he's questioning the the timing of it. These guys say these things happen in their lives or during their lives and very suddenly. 
Uh, Bildad and Zoverab made it sound like God destroys the wicked very quickly and gives them no time for anything at all. Job is pushing back against this thinking. When he looked at the world, he saw the wicked abounding in every way, and he realized they are rarely punished in life. That's his observation. And guess what? He is absolutely correct, isn't he? I mean, anyone with a set of eyes and a little bit of brain power can look around and see the wicked flourishing. We don't see the punishment of God or the judgment of God falling on them. Sometimes we wish for that, which is sinful for us to wish for, because we shouldn't wish that on anyone. But we can see this ourselves. We can see it today, can't we? We see the wicked flourishing and spreading their wickedness everywhere like wildfire, don't we? Last Sunday, John MacArthur said of this election, America has chosen evil. I agree to a degree. Uh, when we say that, we don't want to act like Trump didn't have his own forms of evil. He was the most narcissistic, he was the biggest megalomaniac president we've ever had. He was a disgrace in many ways, made fun of people. He was terrible in a lot of ways. He was very evil. Not to mention he surrounded himself with the scourge that is highlighted in the American gospel, the worst evangelicals in the country. He surrounded himself as his panel of spiritual advisors. I lost a lot of respect for him when he did that. So when we say that, that, that America has chosen evil by voting for Biden, there's truth to that, but we don't want to act like Trump didn't have his own issues. He did. But listen to this. On Thursday, President Biden signed an executive order allowing trans men to compete in women's sports. That's evil. That is incredibly wicked. Women's sports are gone now. There's no such thing. There will be no such thing as women's sports, which is pretty pathetic and sad. And he did the vice versa of it, that, that women could compete in men's sports. It kind of sounds like the government and Biden are following what the Boy Scouts have done by cross-mingling all of that stuff. And, and no doubt about it, it's evil. It's wicked to do something like this. And I think that many of us saw it coming. And when we see the wicked, and to me, what I see there is the wicked and wickedness abounding and flourishing. That's what I see. I see the agenda of Satan. When you, when you blur up gender and screw up gender, biological gender, that's the work of Satan. And that's an attack on God because God has created in His own image men and women, two biological genders. There are no more than two biological genders. I don't care what sociology says, it doesn't make a difference. And when you blur all that up, it's an attack on the maker. It's an attack on the creator. It's wicked. It's evil. It is wickedness abounding. It is the wicked abounding. And when we see this, we say to ourselves, how is this possible? Why doesn't God judge and punish this stuff? Why doesn't He intervene and, and take action against stuff like this? The reason is because God is storing up the iniquities of the wicked so that, for two reasons, so that when He saves them, they will realize how much He loves them, right? One who has been saved from much will love God much. Luke chapter 7, verse 47, I, I, I apply that to my own life. I was a very, very wicked, fleshly, sinful, nasty man before I was saved. And God waited to an, uh, His perfect timing to save me. And once He saved me, I began to realize how much He loves me because I can look back and see what He saved me from. So God lets the iniquities 
of wicked people stack and stack and pile on so that when he saves them, they realize how much he loves them. He does it for that reason or he stores up their iniquities for the day of wrath. For the day of wrath. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Those are two basic fundamental reasons why wickedness is pervasive and why the wicked flourish. God has a plan behind it. He's working out His infinite plan, His plan that doesn't make sense to us because His ways are not our ways, right? His thoughts are above our thoughts. He has a plan. He allows it to happen and He will, all of it will redound for His glory and it always redounds for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Know this, but it's still maddening. It's still frustrating, is it not? Is it not? I don't want to see men dressed like women in women's wrestling. I don't even want to see women's wrestling. That just got really awkward. Why would I be watching women's wrestling? That got weird. But do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want to see, what are they going to do in the Olympics? How do they deal with that? I mean, I just don't understand how this is going to work. It cannot work. But here's the thing. It's maddening. It's frustrating. It's aggravating. And we say of it, how? How does it keep going? God has a plan. And we need to remember we need to make no mistake here, God will judge the wicked. God will judge the wicked, but He may do that when they die. He may not do it in the middle of their lives like Zophar and Bildad said, He has to do it. It's like their idea is that the minute that somebody sins, they're going to be destroyed by God. I guess it doesn't apply to them because they were sinning like crazy with the way they were treating Job. And that's usually the way it works with some people, right? They call out everyone else's sins, but they can't see their own. That's what self-righteous people do. But we need to understand that the timing is in God's hands. He will judge the wicked. There's no doubt. He's either going to save them or He's going to judge them. And guess what? Bildad and Zophar had no concept of this at all. Their religious system, as I said, required immediate retribution for sin. Job is telling them, your system does not work. Look around you. The wicked are not being punished for their sins. Instead, they are flourishing. They have huge families. They have little flocks of little boys. They, the kids dance and sing to Gaga. Look at around you and look at how the wicked flourish. It's true. Job is right. Verses 19 through 21, you say God stores up their iniquity. He's saying of the wicked, God stores up the iniquity of the wicked, what? For their children. And he says, let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and, and let them drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Job anticipates that, that his friends will try to defend their religious system by claiming that if the punishment and judgment of God does not fall on the wicked during their lives, it's because God is planning to punish their children for it. He thinks that that's the argument they're going to try to make here. Well, you're right. His judgment is delayed, but it's going to fall on the kids. That's what he thinks that they're thinking. And it is what they're thinking. And it sounds a little bit like Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, God says there. Job refutes them with a twofold argument. First, he argues that the wicked are responsible for their own iniquities and therefore must know it, see their destruction, and drink the wrath of the Almighty. Job is basically arguing the kids, their kids are not going to pay for their iniquities. They will, whether it be in this life or after this life. They're going to know them. 
Secondly, he argues that God's punishment of the wicked's children would not be an effective deterrent against sin because they would not witness their own demise. That's a very good logical point. If the punishment for sin did not affect the guilty but fell on the successive generations, would people not sin wantonly? If they knew that they could get away with their sin and that sin would just fall on other people connected to them in the future, they would sin like crazy if they knew that. That's what he's saying. If the punishment for sin went to the next generation, the wicked would say, hey, it's no skin off my nose if trouble comes to my family after I die, as long as I'm okay. This again is how the wicked think. The wicked are not concerned, Job says, the wicked are not concerned about their houses, families, when the number of their months is cut off after death. They don't care about what happens later on. They don't care after what happens after they die. If they leave behind a, a legacy of divine punishment for their progeny, what does, that, what does that have to do with me? I'm not there to see it. I'm not there to be impacted by that. That's the logic of the wicked. And Job is saying that's why your solution here cannot be true. It cannot be true. If, if we could get away with our sin and it fell on future generations that are tied to us somehow, then we would sin wantonly. We would sin like crazy. And we just wouldn't even care because we really don't care what happens with our households after we're dead. At least that's the way the wicked people think. Of course, us as Christians do care about our legacy and we do care about what happens with our households after we pass away. But the wicked generally don't care. They want to sin and sin freely without any obstruction and they don't care about the consequences for them or how they impact and fall on others. That is the way they think. They get to live out all their sinful desires and won't see the next generation suffer. So who cares, right? That's the way the wicked mind works. It's precisely how the wicked think. They don't care about personal sin. They don't care about how it affects others. What am I saying? Job was 100% right. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were, as usual, 100% wrong. 22 through 26, will any teach God knowledge, seeing that He judges those who are on high? One dies in, full, in his full vigor, uh, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. In verses 23 through 26, Job compares two men. He pictures a wicked man who is wealthy, his pails full of milk, and healthy, the marrow of his bones moist, who dies in full vigor after enjoying a life of ease and security. That's the first man he paints. And then he pictures a righteous man who never tasted prosperity and died in bitterness of soul. Both men lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. That is really the outcome for all who die, right? As far as we can observe, one man had a long, happy life and the other had a miserable life. Of these two men, who had the better life? The wicked man who cared nothing for God. Right? That's just the way that our minds are going to rationalize it. Right? The guy who has it all and doesn't have the pain and sails through life and has a, a comfortable, easy, I died in my sleep death, he enjoyed everything, had the kids and all the stuff, we would say that that guy had the better life compared to the, even the righteous man who had a terrible, cruddy life, who never really earned a coin, who suffered through his whole life and all that. Of course, Job is referring to himself here. Of course, he was the wealthiest man in the world at the time 
that these things happened. He lost all that. But who had the, who had the better life here? We would say the wicked man who cared nothing for God. Verse 22, Job asks his friends if it is possible to teach God knowledge since they were proposing ideas that did not square with the truth God had revealed throughout history since the time of Adam and Eve. Every life is in the hands of the sovereign God, the wicked and the righteous. If the wicked man has a good life, God ordained it. If the righteous man has a tough life, has a difficult life, has a miserable life, God ordained it, and vice versa. And in the end, God will put both men in the cemetery, even side by side sometimes, right? Job understood this. The illustration he gave proves it. But his friends disagreed. In their religious system, this cannot be. It's impossible. God must punish the wicked and do it quickly, and He must reward the righteous. There is no other way. But the examples set before them contradicted their views. The happy wicked, the people of us, and the embittered righteous Job. Those are the examples that he sets right there to prove his point. You've got a bunch of wicked people in the community. They're happy, living great lives, dying in peace. And then you've got the embittered uh, righteous that don't have a penny, don't have a pot to you-know-what in. And that's me, Job. Job is using these examples. Why is it that these men held to their theology couldn't see the reality of what was going on around them? Why is it that they couldn't understand that they had it backwards, that God can, in fact, give the righteous a tough life and the wicked a good life? Why couldn't they understand this? Job set examples for them, and he himself is a prime example. And I, I think it's because the reason why they wouldn't submit to what Job is saying is because, honestly, they were just too prideful. And Job is really challenging them here. What he's saying is that since you hold a different position than God on these things, on these matters, your system, you've exalted that above God. In other words, you know more than God, don't you? That's what he's saying. And then he warns them. What does he say? God judges those who are on high. Who are the ones who are on high here? The high and mighty friends with their theology that contradicts truth. Now we can move to our third and final main point. Our third and final main point. The wicked prosper even in death. The wicked prosper even in death. This is a, a very challenging point that he has made here. And he makes it in 27 through 33. Uh, we'll look at 27 and 30 through 31st. Behold, he says, I know your thoughts and your schemes, he's speaking to his friends, for you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked, these, these, uh, asked those who travel the roads, and do you not accept their testimony, that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Expecting his friend's response to what he's been saying to be exactly the same as before, Job declares, I know your thoughts. I know what you're thinking. He knew his discourse had not changed their minds, even though he asked them to look around and see for themselves. And he anticipated that their schemes to wrong him would continue. What was their schemes? 
One scheme was that powerful, wicked people completely disappear from the earth under the judgment of God. That was one of their little schemes they concocted. This is expressed in verse 28. Where is the house of the prince and the tent in which the wicked lived? And it is expressed by Bildad in chapter 18, verses 15 through 21. That's one of their schemes. One of their schemes is really their rewards and retribution theology. Their position that God always punishes the wicked and always rewards the righteous, and the righteous always have their best life now, and the wicked never get their best life now. That's one of their little schemes that they kept hitting Job with. Uh, the word house in verse 28 means palaces and dynasties. Uh, there will be no more trace of their palaces and dynasties on earth. That's what these friends have been saying. But is this true? Not necessarily. Sometimes powerful, wicked people are spared in the day of calamity and seemingly rescued in the day of wrath. In other words, Job is saying, hey, you think their houses and their progeny and their descendants all disappear? No, it doesn't happen because sometimes they're spared of these things. In other words, they somehow avoid trouble in life and they somehow escape destructive endings even though they are wicked. That's the point that Job is making here. And that is what he's been talking about all along, is it not? It is. In verse 29, he challenges his friends to look around again. Come on, guys, look around and see for yourselves. Maybe you could even ask some passerbys, right? Who are they called, according to Job here? Those who travel the roads. Look, if you don't want to take my word for it, that the wicked are happy and they rarely suffer punishment in life and, and they, they enjoy all these blessings and all this, if you don't want to take my word for it, look around. If you don't want to believe what you see, then ask somebody walking down the road and ask them if the wicked if they flourish, if I'm even close to being right here. That's what Job is saying here. He challenges them, look around again and maybe ask somebody else. I know you don't want to take my word for it. Like, excuse me, sir, I know you're exercising, walking here along the Virginia Trail, but have you seen powerful, wicked people avoid trouble and escape destructive endings in their lives? Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever seen the wicked prosper and flourish and, and not be punished and get through life unscathed? And have you ever seen that? What would somebody even here in town say? Now, their idea of what is wicked might be weird, but I think that even somebody here, if we were to ask a passerby, they, they would say, of course. Of course I have. I've seen wicked people flourish. I've seen them avoid trouble. I mean, you've heard of Hillary and her emails. Right? Would they not say something like that? Of course. Of course they would. If, if Job's friends would just stop and take a look around, they'd see them flourishing, and they'd have people affirm that. You know, we used to prosecute wicked, corrupt politicians and people, didn't we? There was a time in this country where we used to prosecute people who did those things, who did wicked things. Today, we celebrate them. Today, we celebrate them. We celebrate Planned Parenthood, which is responsible for the abortion of murder of millions of babies. We celebrate that. That's one of the highest levels of wickedness in our land, and it's celebrated and funded with your tax dollars. Unbelievable. How many of you have heard of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Going way back now. You remember who they were? They were executed, I think in the 40s, they were executed for espionage. Well, guess what? 
people who are caught in espionage today, if they're caught at all, they're not executed. They're hailed as socialist heroes. That's what happens. That's what happens. We used to punish the wicked. In fact, that is the purpose of our government. It is to reward the righteous. And it is to punish the wicked. According to God, that is God's design for government. Does our government do that? It's putting men and women sports. It allows the murder of babies. It's doing all sorts of crazy things. I've been doing this for a long time now. No, it's wickedness. It's pervasive. It's not punished. It's celebrated. I don't think our country has long, by the way. I don't. I don't. I don't think it'll stand for a thousand years like the Roman Empire barely did. I don't think it will. We used to punish wickedness. Now we celebrate it. If Job's friends would just look around and ask, they would know. They would know. Even passerbys would say, no, I see the wicked prevailing all the time. I don't see them punished. I see them flourishing. It happens. If we were to ask the same question, we would get the same answer. It's true that evil people, the wicked, do avoid trouble and rarely experience destructive Endings. I'm not talking about what happens to them after they die. I'm talking about in life. Now, if Job's friends were to ask around and even get the input from passerbys, would they accept their testimony, Job asks? He thinks not. Nah, they wouldn't accept that testimony anyways because it refutes their theological position. Verse 31, "...who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done." Job gives a reason why the wicked man avoids trouble and escapes destructive endings. He gives a reason right here. It's because he's never challenged. Nobody ever questions him, right? Nobody, no, no one declares his, his wickedness to his face, Job says. No one repays him for the, the wicked things that he has done, Job says here. People leave the wicked alone. Why? Because they're scared of him. And they just let them continue to be wicked and do wicked things. The wicked man avoids trouble and escapes destructive endings because, really, men do not intervene. Good men, if you want to call them that. Righteous men don't intervene. But mostly because God does not intervene. Right? That's what frustrates Job. But like I said, God has a purpose behind these things. The wicked people who were flourishing in Job's community really proved his point. Nobody, including God, was intervening. The wicked were being left alone, and their families' livestock, safety, peace, prosperity, and happiness were increasing exponentially. They were living long, fruitful lives, enjoying retirement and drifting off into the afterlife in peace. Probably in their minds, they're going to pluck little, be little fat cherubs and pluck harps on clouds because that's what people think about heaven. Job saw this with his own eyes. He saw it everywhere around him in us. Where was the divine judgment his friends boasted about? Where was the terror? Where's the pain? Where's the disillusion? Losing everything. Where's the payback they promoted? Where? Where are these things happening? Of course, they would say, well, it's happening in your life at least. Right? But it wasn't happening in that community. If they looked around and asked around, they would be forced to draw the same conclusion that Job has drawn. Or they would just deny it and keep lying and keep pushing their thing, which is what they would do. Verses 32 and 33, when he is carried to the grave, he's speaking of the wicked, when he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb, the clods of the valley are sweet to him. Those are dirt clods. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. 
The friends have said that the wicked die painfully, gruesome, painfully, fiery deaths. That's how they die. They just go out. Just like a, a, a burning star, they go out. They go off to Sheol kicking and screaming. They go down to hell or Sheol kicking and screaming in absolute terror. That's how they leave this earth. But Job witnessed the wicked even prospering in death. The wicked man, he says, is carried to the grave. He's carried to the grave. In other words, when he dies, he is honored with a funeral procession that is full of pomp and splendor. After his body is paraded around and, and honored and then laid to rest, what the wicked man receives additional honor when guards are placed nearby to keep watch over his tomb. This is what Job has observed of the wicked dying and being buried. Now, the tombs of, of wicked people were usually elaborate. Plus, they were often buried. The wicked were buried with expensive jewelry and other priceless possessions. Think of King Tut, but on a smaller scale. The guards were placed there to make sure that vandals did not desecrate those beautiful tombs and to keep the grave robbers out. Job considers the honoring of the deceased wicked man in these ways prosperous. This is how he prospers in death. Taking it further, he says the clods of the valley are sweet to him. The clods represent the soil or dirt that covers his corpse. Uh, could be rendered the dirt of the valley is sweet to him. Uh, people in antiquity were usually buried in valleys. Uh, the valley is where you would find cemeteries back then. Jesus was buried in a tomb at Golgotha, which is in the Kidron what? Valley. But guess what? He didn't stay there for long, did he? Only... Roughly three days there. On the third day he rose. The meaning of Job's poetry is that even death is good to the wicked. This is true in a sense. The wicked are honored and, and, and in a sense glorified in their deaths, right? With the, with the processions and the big funerals and the elaborate tombs and maybe even a guard or two there. They're buried in, in, in beautiful priceless jewelry and these sorts of things. Some of them are buried in expensive cars. The wicked are, are honored and, and glorified in death and that's how, the, how death is good to the wicked in a sense. Yeah, it's also... in the sense that they are at rest from their earthly pursuits but we need to ask the question, is Sheol or Hades a rest stop? No. No, it's no rest stop. It's a prison, and it's worse than San Quentin or Pelican Bay. Taking it even further, Job tells Zophar, all mankind follows after the wicked deceased man, and those who go before him are innumerable. In other words, lots and lots of people follow not only their coffin in the funeral procession, but they follow their examples of prosperous wickedness. The wicked man basically leaves behind a legacy of prosperous wickedness that others follow. Thus, he prospers in death. Get it? That's what Job is saying. Is this true? Absolutely. Some of the most incredible funerals that we've ever even had in this nation were in celebration of wicked people. No doubt. Verse 34, how then, and this is incredible what Job says, and we're closing up here. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? <laughs> there is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Job ends his Really incredible response to Zophar with a simple question. After thoroughly refuting his friends, their whole position, after really destroying their theology, he asks, 
How are you going to comfort me with all these empty words, these empty nothings? You know, we like to whisper sweet nothings to our spouse. These guys were whispering sweet nothings to Job. Their words were hollow. They were flat. They didn't nourish. They weren't even scriptural. They were utterly useless in a sense. Even though we do find a lot of truth in what they said, they didn't have any sort of positive effect for someone who was suffering like Job. When you give answers, Job is saying, when you give answers, you are doing nothing but spewing falsehood. That's all you do. Thanks for mutton. Right? Get the Seinfeld reference there? Thanks for mutton. The religious system of Job's friends really is a lot of nonsense when you think about it. It is. Even though they spoke some truth about the demise of the wicked, their timing of it and all of that is way off. They expect God to do things immediate according to their calendars, and God does things the way that He's going to do them, and He has purposes. But their, their whole position is really pretty much useless, at least useless in the sense that it had no helpful, um, encouraging effect on poor Job who was suffering just in a way that none of us have ever suffered. Their religious system is a lot of nonsense when you think about it. It doesn't fit with the clear observations of any honest man with his eyes open, right? Anyone can see that the wicked often prosper and are rarely punished in this life. <laughs> Anyone can see that that the wicked are happy and have healthy, happy kids who dance in the living room and in the streets. I mean, we can, we can all see this with our own eyes. Anyone can see that the wicked often prosper and are rarely punished, that they enjoy a good life, that they, uh, and that really the opposite is true of those who are righteous so often, right? Sometimes the wicked man is doing all these great things and the righteous man is the one who's suffering and and barely making it financially, and, and, and barely getting through life, and suffers one loss after the other, and you know has just tremendous difficulty. I think we, we could all admit to that, that we do see the wicked prosper, and we do see the righteous suffer. This happens all the time. We see this happening with Job in his own life, don't we? And we see this, most importantly, with Jesus, don't we? We do. But we need to remember that God will judge the wicked man. He will not escape. He will not escape. And guess what? God will also vindicate the righteous man. It's inevitable. It will happen, right? The wicked will be judged. The righteous will be vindicated. That is Job's message in chapter 21. And I think he's provided ample evidence of the truthfulness of it. Closing. Closing. And I think this is important to talk about here. It parallels in pretty well. I want to talk to you briefly about the deceitfulness of a good life. You hear what I said? I want to talk to you about the deceitfulness of a good life. All right? Living a good life, one that is filled with prosperity, and you may not think that you're prosperous, but living in America gives you a massive advantage. Maybe you only make 30, 40 grand a year. You make 10 times what an African in the Serengeti makes. We are extremely prosperous. Even if you make $15 an hour, you make more than most people make per hour in other countries, especially third world nations. If uh, my point, living a good life, one that is filled with prosperity, 
one that is filled with comfort, one that is filled with ease and, and many blessings, that can blind a person and keep them from seeing their own wickedness and need for the gospel. The wicked man may possess everything poor people long for, but he is at a, a major disadvantage. I'm speaking of maybe the powerful wicked man, the wicked man that has more things than a poor person. He's at a major disadvantage. His good life can blind him from seeing his true self and true need. Uh, a prime example of this would be the rich young ruler. Jesus told him to sell his things, give the proceeds to the poor, and to follow him, to become a disciple. But he went away sad because he didn't want to give up his riches. Right? Mark 10, 17 through 22. Jesus tells his disciples right after that little episode how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Matthew 19, 23 through 25. A little story that kind of illustrates the deceptiveness of wealth and a good life. Years ago, a, a pastor and a deacon were calling on people who had visited their church, hoping to present the gospel and draw them into their fellowship. As they drove to one man's house, the address brought them to an affluent neighborhood. Block after block was filled with beautiful mansions. As they drove up to this man's house, they were awestruck by what they saw. Uh, the house was a virtual castle. Tall columns rose up across the front of the house. The large number of rules spread out uh, gave it the appearance of a hotel. The lawn was obviously perfectly manicured. There were many expensive cars parked in the driveway. As they approached the front door, the pastor and deacon peered through the front window, a big plate glass window, and they looked through that window. The man of the house was seated in his luxurious living room in a beautiful chair surrounded by antique furniture. As they approached the front door, the deacon turned to the pastor and asked, are you sure we have good news for him? You sure we have good news for him? Why did he say this? He said this because wealthy people tend to be less sensitive to the good news, to the gospel. Why trust in a Savior when they already have everything a person could want in life? Now, if these, this wealthy man was Jewish, it'd be even worse for him. And I'm not picking on Jewish people. I'm just saying that they are literally taught from birth that wealth is a sign of God's salvation. Okay? And they are also taught to hate Jesus because he's the enemy. The deceptiveness of a good life, a life that's filled with prosperity and, 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 and health and all these wonderful things, it can be deceptive because it can blind us and keep us from seeing our true selves, that we are actually wicked and our true need, that we need the gospel. I mean, like the Jews in Malachi's day asked, why trust in God? Why, why do we even need Him? Or like, uh, like the, the people in, in us asked, why, why would we need God in our lives? We have everything we need. Why trust in a Savior when you've got everything you ever want? Now, I, I think that it's true that we all want a good life, right? Is that not true? 
<laughs> Who wants a bad life? Lord, give me a crappy life. Who's ever prayed that? Seriously. Do we not all want a good life? We do. Every person wants health and wealth. This is a fact. Every person wants it. Why? It's in our nature to want those things. This is why prosperity preachers are so successful. Their demonic preaching strikes a nerve in fallen sinners. Nobody wants a bad life. Who wishes for that? But we need to remember that a good life can be deceitful and deceptive. It can blind us from seeing our true self and true need. I think the easier things become for us, the less likely we are to turn to God for anything. Uh, I love what one author in Scripture wrote. I think it's in, uh, I think it's a proverb, or it might be in a psalm. But he prays to the Lord, and I should have probably written it down. It's coming to my mind now. But he prays to the Lord, and his prayer is this. Do not make me wealthy because I will forget you, Lord. Do not make me a pauper because I might steal and dishonor you. Just give me my daily bread. That's all I need. That's the safest place to be. Did you know that? It is. The wicked man may live in comfort and ease. He may enjoy a long, peaceful life. He may experience prosperity and death with a glorious tomb and many followers later on, but he will go down to Sheol and later to hell. That's a fact. Though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Psalm 92, verse 7. That's what Bruce read earlier. And we need to remember this. Last thought. We need to remember that the righteous, those who are in Christ... Even though we may have difficulty in life, we may suffer, we may be broke, we may be all these things, we are spiritually wealthy. We are spiritual trillionaires. We possess every promise of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. We possess spiritual blessings, which are really unbelievable, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We possess an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1, 4. So, who is better off, the wicked person who has everything in life and hell for eternity, or the righteous person who has few earthly possessions, losses, suffering, persecution, and Christ as their Lord and Savior? Who is better off? Who is better off? Hopefully, you believe the latter, and that's you.